0: This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read God's Word this morning as it is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, here we find a familiar text about the qualifications of office bearers, of bishops, and of deacons, and as you will find reading through the qualifications, that almost all of them apply to all of God's people. We must seek to have the same qualifications in the office of believer. Such is godliness. First Timothy 3. Hear the Word of God. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well... Purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. read that far in God's holy and inspired Word. Turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 14. Based upon the Scriptures from which we read, Lord's Day 14, we find the Catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed, what we confess as our faith regarding Christ, the second person of the Trinity. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon Him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. By the operation of the Holy Spirit, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity, that he is our mediator? And with His innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I remind you this morning that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only what Christ has done. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is who He is. When we think about the gospel, we often think about the work of Jesus Christ, especially what He did in sacrificing Himself on the cross in our place. And that is indeed the heart of the gospel. But the gospel is not only His work and His work on the cross, but the gospel is His identity. In fact, it has to be first about who He is, His identity, before it can be about what He has done. Think about that very briefly. If someone other than Jesus Christ, the true Jesus Christ, if someone other than Him went to the cross and suffered what Christ endured, His work would not be good news to us. Because that One could not save us from our sins. Only if He went to the cross as the One who is very God, very man, and perfectly righteous. Only if He has this identity as revealed in the Scriptures do we have the Gospel. The Gospel is first about who He is. Before, it is about what He has done. The greatness of His work depends on the greatness of His person and His natures. Thus, the Catechism has been explaining the names of Jesus Christ that we confess in the Apostles' Creed. The names of our Savior bring us to His identity. The name Jesus. The name Christ. The name only begotten Son. And then the name Our Lord. We're talking about who He is first, which relates then to what He has done. And today, the Catechism in explaining the next part of the Apostles' Creed again explains it in terms of who He is. Even when it explains who the, the phrase, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, notice, the Catechism brings up again who He is. That God's eternal Son who is and continueth true and eternal God took upon Him the very nature of man and the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. Let us, beloved, this morning not only consider this Gospel of who He is, but let us again marvel, marvel, at His identity. Be astonished about who this person of the Son of God is. Stand in awe, beloved. That's what you have come to church for. To worship. To stand in awe of this wonder of all wonders. Here is the greatest miracle of who He is. The most astonishing of mysteries. God made Flesh in the womb of a virgin. It's not enough, you know. It's not enough that we celebrate the incarnation of God the Son on December 25th. It is not enough that we praise God for this mystery of godliness maybe a couple of weeks during Advent season before December 25th. Although it certainly is proper to celebrate the Incarnation at that time, one of the dangers in setting a date for celebrating something we call Christmas is that we think that when December 25th is over, then the celebration of the Incarnation can stop. and We can go on thinking about other things. The wonder of the Christ child is stored in the back of our minds along with the decorations of the season or archived along with the carols that we don't take back up on our lips till the next year. Thank God you have the Heidelberg Catechism which brings us in the month of March to the incarnation again to remind us. That this is what we are to celebrate all the days of our life. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Consider with me this Gospel. Rejoice with me in this Gospel. Under the theme, the great mystery of God incarnate. First, His identity. Second, our prophet. And then finally, the calling. His identity, our prophet, and then the calling. A couple of weeks ago in Lord's Day 13, question and answer 33, just the next, the Lord's Day before the one we consider today. I remind you what we considered of the identity of Christ. He is the begotten Son of God. Remember that. He wasn't begotten when He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, as we consider in Lord's Day 14 today. But He was before that, eternally begotten of the Father. Before all worlds, we confess in our creeds. And the Catechism in Lord's Day 14 now reminds us of that. That eternality of God the Son. That God's eternal Son who is and continueth true and eternal God. He is from eternity, the catechism is saying, the begotten Son of God. But now not only was God the Son eternally begotten of the Father, but the point of the catechism is mainly this. That He never ceased to be God. He continued to be God. So that even when the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, now as we find Him described here in Lord's Day 14, takes on flesh, becomes a human in the womb of Mary, He continues, the catechism says, He is and He continues to be the true eternal God. That's also Paul's point in 1 Timothy 3.16 when he speaks of this great mystery of godliness. Notice he describes it as this. God manifest in the flesh. The unchanging God now manifest, literally revealed or made known in flesh. He remains this God. Meditate and marvel on a mystery so great you cannot fully comprehend it And yet God has given you the mind of Christ to understand it to a degree. While remaining God, while continuing to be God the Son, the only begotten of the Father, not becoming lesser than God, but continuing to be co-equal with Father and co-equal with Son, and maintaining the fullness of his attributes omnipresence omnipotence wisdom he now also became flesh man in mathematical terms in mathematical terms there was no subtraction no taking away from his deity he continued to be fully god Though as He descended and took on human flesh, He chose to hide His deity, to veil His Godhead, not to use His divine power as a human to lay it aside in that sense. That is a great mystery called the Incarnation. We call it the Incarnation partly based on this text in First Timothy 3.16. When we find the words in the flesh, God manifest in the flesh. That's where the word incarnation comes from. Carnation. Carn is the Latin word for flesh. Incarnation literally means the infleshing. The infleshing of God. God took on flesh so that He is revealed. In the flesh. That's inspired Scripture. The Holy Spirit is especially the one who has done the work to have God the Son in flesh. Catechism says, by the operation of the Holy Spirit. And the Scripture is explicit about that. Father gave His Son, His only begotten Son. God the Son willingly came, condescended to us. But for there to be in the womb of Mary, God in the flesh, the Holy Spirit must work. That's what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, Luke one thirty five: The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Conception is a wonder itself, isn't it? For there to be a human being, body and soul, in the womb of a woman. That itself is a wonder. But about 2,000 years ago, something infinitely more wondrous took place. Great is the mystery of godliness. Not only was there conceived in the womb a human being, body and soul, but there was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Mary God, the person of the Son, without losing any of His deity, made flesh. Notice three miracles, or three aspects of this one great miracle or mystery of the incarnation. And these three points I'm going to follow through also in the second point, so have them clear in your mind. Three aspects of this miracle, or three miracles of this great incarnation, this great mystery. First, and most importantly, the miracle of the incarnation was the inseparable union of God and man. The the person of the Son with His divine nature now is united to the human nature to such a degree, to such closeness, in such a powerful union that God and man in the person of Jesus Christ would never again be broken apart. That's a miracle. It could never ever be pulled apart. An inseparable and permanent union of God and man. Great is this mystery. Never again, never again would God the Son not be in the flesh. Think about that. What love. What love of God that He would look upon us with that mercy to condescend and make Himself, we would put it, stuck to us. When a husband and wife get married, I warn them in pre-marriage counseling that if they get married, they are stuck for life. And I'll put it in those terms to express to them how permanent it is, the marriage bond. It's not all negative. Though there are negatives, because you must bear with the the sins and the weaknesses of your spouse for life till death do us part. Now God the Son, when He was incarnate, by His Holy Spirit, united His person to our human nature. And He was stuck not merely for life, but forever. He did that to save us, to make us one with Him. Though not identical to this, think about the union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. We've considered that already. An inseparable union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But comparable to the power of that union between the three persons, so now is this union between God the Son and human flesh. Cannot be broken. And to impress you with this miracle, I read for you Belgic Confession article 19. Belgic Confession article 19 brings us to an astounding point about this inseparable union that the Holy Spirit performed in the womb of the virgin of Mary. In Belgic Confession article 19 the second paragraph reads this way. But these two natures referring to the divine And the human are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even, notice, by his death. Therefore, that which he, when dying, commended into the hands of his father, was a real human spirit departing from his body. But, in the meantime, the divine nature always remained united with the human, even when he lay in the grave. And the Godhead did not cease to be in Him any more than it did when He was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while. What the budget Confession is explaining to us is this. So closely, so inseparably that God the Son joined Himself to our human nature that even at death, that union was not broken. Now, at death, the Belgian confession is saying the body and the soul was separated. The soul went to heaven in the hands of Father, and the body remained in the grave on this earth. But that still did not break the union of God the Son with both soul in heaven and body in the tomb. God was in the grave. That's how low He descended for us. The miracle of the Incarnation is that inseparable permanent union of human and divine in the one person of the Son. Secondly, great is this mystery of godliness because there was conception in a virgin. In a virgin. It had to be so. The 750-year-old prophecy, the Word of God, infallible, inspired, had said, Isaiah 7, verse 14, The Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Did you hear that prophetic word of Isaiah, of God? It cannot fail. It had to come to pass. If Messiah was to be Messiah, he would to come of a virgin. Or in the negative, if Messiah had been conceived, In someone other than a virgin, if Messiah had been conceived in Mary who was not a virgin, merely a young woman as some dare to claim, then the child in her womb could not have been Messiah. God's Word has to stand. And for Christians to go about claiming today, as many do, that Jesus is Messiah, but deny that He came of a virgin, is the same thing as saying that God is a liar. No, God said He must come of a virgin. Mary was a virgin. God's Word stands. His truth endureth to all generations. How shall this be, she said, seeing I know not a man? And the angel said to Joseph, When as his mother, or described by the inspired Matthew, I should say, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Ghost. Without sexual relations, without sperm, the Holy Ghost worked within the body of the Virgin to conceive a real human that which never had taken place before, nor ever will, that which is humanly impossible, the Holy Spirit did in the womb of Mary. He became a real human in Mary, not just appearing as a human, a real human. A complete human. Not just... Not merely a body that was human, but both soul and body of the true seed of David. Because Mary, remember, was of David's line. The Spirit did not form Jesus outside of Mary's womb and then plop Him in Mary to carry as a surrogate mother. But the Spirit formed Jesus according to His human nature of Mary's egg of her flesh, of her blood, of her DNA, so that he was a Jew of the stock of Abraham, of the seed of David, of the line of Judah. And weak, like us, in all things. God the Son experienced in that human nature a weakening, more astounding than you can imagine god almighty now experiencing the helplessness of a human speck in the womb in a sinful woman with all the effects of the fall to feel pain hunger thirst grief mental strain fatigue shame Temptation, touched with all the feelings of our infirmities, except without sin, which is the third miracle, human and divine, inseparably united within the womb of a virgin and sinless Like unto his brethren in all things, the catechism says, sin accepted. Ponder that mystery. And beloved, stand in awe of this mystery. The angel told Mary, Therefore also that holy thing, or that holy one, which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God when that Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary as the angel Gabriel said He would, that Holy Spirit, yes, we said, ensured that He was the real Son of Mary of her womb, of her genes, of her flesh and blood, but yet at the same time did not allow any of Mary's sin, her sin nature, To infiltrate Christ's body and soul. What a mystery. What a mystery of godliness. Uh, That tells us a little bit of what Paul meant, doesn't it? Mystery of godliness. Great is this mystery of godliness. Do you want to talk about godliness? Well, oh, here is godliness. Godliness is literally God to wordness. Sin is to miss the mark, remember? Sin is to turn away from God and to shoot for someone else's glory. That's sin. That's ungodliness. Godliness is to always be aiming at the mark toward God and His glory. And always hitting that mark in the middle at the bullseye. The mystery of godliness is Jesus Himself. Without original sin, with all the commandments on His heart, with perfect trust of His Father, with perfect love and thanks, aimed always at God's glory and always hitting that mark. With all His heart, mind, soul, and strength and all of His actions as well. With all of His deeds, with all of His thoughts and desires. Never a selfish thought. Never pride after a good work more willing and more faithful than the angels in heaven. A pillar of truth and grace through all weakness and temptation and fiery trial worse than you and I or any human has ever endured, not a single sin, without a sin sin of omission. Meaning, knowing each and every good He was called to do, He always did it perfectly. Great is this mystery of perfect godliness. And this is the gospel. This is good news. The glorious identity of Jesus when God's eternal Son, continuing true and eternal God, became a man, man, inseparably inseparably united, God and man, in the womb of a virgin without sin. And there's prophet. the catechism says. What prophet dost thou received by Christ's holy conception and nativity? The prophet, the catechism explains this way, he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. And to help you follow now, I remind you I'm going through these three miracles that I've just given you about The incarnation, and from these three miracles, we're going to derive from them the prophet as the catechism explains it. The first benefit, the first prophet, because of that inseparable union now between God and man is this, he is qualified to do the work of suffering and dying for each of us, his elect people. He is qualified to do that work of suffering and dying for us. That is what the Catechism means with that phrase, He is our Mediator. There's so much in that phrase. Because of the Incarnation, He is our Mediator. Mediator, I remind you, is the go-between. The one who stands between God, the just God now, and us, sinful man. And this Mediator must take upon Himself the wrath, The infinite and just wrath of God against us for our sins. That's the only way that we can be delivered. But he had to. He had to be both God and man, inseparably united in the womb of the Virgin. If he wasn't, he could not be this mediator to take God's wrath upon us. And we ask, why did he have to remain God? Remember Lord's Day 5. No mere creature can. No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. Only the infinite Son of God, continuing to be true and eternal God, could sustain that human nature so that all that suffering was of infinite value. so that it was enough. It is finished, as He said, having endured the infinite wrath of God by the power of His Godhead. Yet at the same time, He had to be man, joined to that divine person, a real, complete, weak human nature. Because as you know, catechism students, man has to suffer for man's sin. To represent us. To be our substitute. He could not come as an angel. Remember, He came as an angel. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. The pre-incarnate Christ. Who appeared as a man. If He had come like that, as He did in the Old Testament, He would not have been able to suffer in our place because He would not have been a real man. The justice of God requires, Lord, say six, that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. This perfect union of divine and human qualified Jesus to do the work of mediator in suffering the infinite, Wrath of God in our place. But before we go to the second miracle and see the prophet there, we need to delve a little deeper. And now I ask you to put your whole mind into this. There's more to the word mediator, there's depth here. More about the prophet in that miracle of God being inseparably united to man in Jesus. And that second benefit is this. Jesus is the way of fellowship with the Father. Jesus Himself is the way of fellowship with the Father. Now, to make that, that, that point clear before I explain it, I'm not saying that He has earned the fellowship with the Father. He has done that too. But because of this inseparable union of God and man, He is the way of fellowship with the Father. That obviously is from John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by Me. But now to explain it, turn to Belgium Confession, Article 26, and listen to the depth, the profound meaning that Jesus not only earned fellowship with the Father, but He is the way of fellowship with the Father. Belgium Confession, Article 26. Belgium Confession, Article 26. Is about Christ's work as mediator, not only at the cross, but after the cross. He is the way of fellowship. We believe that we have no access unto God, meaning you right now, you don't have any access or fellowship. That's the word, one word to, to speak of fellowship. No access unto God. But only through the only medi- alone through the only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who therefore, notice how, where the Belgian confession bases or roots this fellowship in, who therefore became man, having united in one person the divine and human natures, that are so that we men might have access to the divine majesty, which access which we would Otherwise, be barred against us. Now, I can't fully understand this or fully explain this, but we need to come to a good degree of understanding of this. Ponder this. There is not only sin between God and man, but there is a great gulf, a barrier. Because He is God and we are puny men, If God were to speak to us and have fellowship and, ha- and, and 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 speak his word to us and we didn't have the mediator we we wouldn't experience that fellowship. We don't have access to the almighty God because we're so low and sinful. And for the experience of fellowship with God The mediator has come, not only to earn it, as I said, not only to merit it, but now to be in his person, the one that bridges the gap and brings God to man in his very person. And this Jesus Christ then links you as an individual who ought to be cut off from any fellowship with God. He links you by the bond of faith to Himself where there is that inseparable union. That in Christ, literally in Christ, there is a connection and a fellowship between this infinite, almighty God and you puny man. To be concrete, how can you even hear God speak to you? The answer Because the one, Jesus Christ, who has united God and man in His flesh, speaks. And how how can you speak to God in prayer? Because the one who has united God and man in His flesh speaks for you to God. How can you enjoy any assurance of His forgiveness, of His love? How can you enjoy the ability to do any good works as part of the fellowship with God? Because Jesus Christ in His very person has united God and man. That is why you have And experience covenant communion with the Father. In Jesus alone. What about the second miracle? What's the benefit of this union? The second miracle speaks of the union that happens in the womb of a virgin. The virgin. I'll be brief here. The benefit of the virgin conception is that It is to us a sign. A sign that points out the true Messiah. I already hinted at this. Isaiah 7.14 The Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. A sign, children, remember, it's like like a street sign. Think of going down the road and sometimes we don't know what's the right exit. How do we know where where to go? Where is that city walker? Or think of the sign outside our building. How does one know, who's not a member of this church, where Hope PRC gathers for worship? You look for a sign. A sign points out the place. Points out the true Messiah. God said to the Jews of old, He said in His Word, this is a sign, the marker, where you will find the Messiah. He'll be coming from a virgin. And that's the prophet of the virgin conception against the Jewish foolish unbelief who has rejected the Messiah. Though they knew the Old Testament scriptures, they knew Mary was Mary was a virgin. They refused to accept him as Messiah. God has shown us an infallible sign to confirm to us, indeed, this is the Messiah promised of old. But the sign of the virgin, as for our prophet, not only to point out accurately who the Messiah is, is a sign also in this sense is a sign with a, with a deep meaning, a comforting meaning, to our hearts today. And the meaning of the sign of the virgin is this. Men. Yes, males. Men. And women with them. But men. Males. You who tend to focus on work because you were created to work. Men. God says with the sign of the virgin, I don't need you. You will have nothing to do with saving yourself. That's what the sign of the virgin says. Without the work of man, without the help of man, God will bring forth this Savior in the utterly passive Virgin Mary. Salvation is all of the Lord. And that's humbling. It is, man. Oh, what comfort? What relief? What freedom? How relieving. What a weight comes off your shoulders and mine. And every last bit of salvation, justification, sanctification, faith itself, preservation, glorification, is not by my hard work on the job. Is not by my hard work in church, at school, at home. Is not because of my repenting, or my good works. Or because I've impressed someone with my performance, I'm just like Joseph, who didn't do a thing to conceive that Savior. He gives that Savior to me. And each one who believes that says, by the power of the Spirit, along with Mary, may be it unto me, according to Thy Word. Finally, the prophet of the third miracle, the sinlessness of Christ. The catechism focuses on this point with His innocence and perfect holiness covers In the sight of God, my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. There are two theological points here to notice. First, that the catechism does not focus on, is that Christ's innocence qualified Him, again that word, qualified Him to suffer for us. Remember, one who is himself a sinner, Lord's Day 6, cannot suffer for another's sins. If Jesus had committed a single sin, if He had committed one sin of omission, that is, knowing the good that His Father wanted Him to do, He didn't do it. If He had committed one sin, He would have had to suffer for His own. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, and according to His power as God, He could not sin. He did not sin, and therefore, in his perfect innocence, was able, was qualified to suffer for ours. But now notice what the catechism especially focuses on here as the prophet of his innocence. Not only was he qualified, but the catechism is explaining that his innocence, his perfect holiness... Is our righteousness. It's talking about his active obedience in our place. His innocence and perfect holiness covers us. He obeyed the whole law of God for us. And now we ask when? When did he begin obeying God's law for us? Not only after he was born, not during his public ministry mainly, merely, but the catechism is saying, go back, go back, back all the way, all the way to his conception in the womb of the virgin. At the moment of his conception, he was without sin. From the moment of his conception onward, he was a perfect holiness. From the womb, all the way to the tomb. That is, immediately at His holy conception, He already began to weave our robes of righteousness. Spotless robes. With which He clothes us before the face of God. Not merely do we stand before God as not guilty, but perfectly holy in Jesus Christ. Great is this mystery of godliness. And the special application here is about little children Which we all once were in the womb now, in the womb before, real souls and bodies who, according to God's word, will sometimes die in miscarriage or soon after birth. For those special covenant children. Who didn't even have a developed brain to think consciously about Jesus or a mouth to confess their faith in Jesus. Christ's perfect innocence and holiness thus cover us, his people. What a wonder, great mystery of godliness and the calling is again repent and believe this gospel repent that is be sorry in turn from your love of booze your love of money for your love of all those things and sins of this earth that you have cherished more than this jesus repent of your boredom with this incarnation repent of imagining that somehow your works gain with god that somehow your works cause your experience of fellowship with God with true sorrow for sin. Yet not depending on that sorrow. Depend. Lean on this person alone. This Jesus. Rest not first of all in His work, But first of all, in Him. In who He is. And then what He has done. Lean on this mystery of godliness. And He still alive. Perfectly God. And perfectly man. Conceived in the womb of the virgin. Was sinless in your place. As the only way of access. To the Father, now and one day in glory. And then worship. First Timothy three sixteen is an old, old confession or hymn. That you can hear the exclamation, the thrill in those words as Paul says, as right as he writes to Timothy and the church. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness god manifest in the flesh worship him with the angels praise him exclaim his greatness what is so great to you what's so great about your vacation what's so great about that game what's so great about that food what's so great about this church even in comparison to the greatness of this God, this mystery of godliness. There's nothing greater. Don't let anything become greater in your heart and be sorry if it does. So great is He that you have yet to fully understand the wonder of His greatness. Every hour, ponder His incarnation. And it still won't be enough. Praise to Him. And then finally, be godly. Great is the mystery of godliness. We've already explained that as Christ being godly, perfectly godly, in our place. What a wonder. But his salvation is even greater, beloved. Even greater. Because this great mystery of godliness. Christ manifests in the flesh. Makes us godly. He does. Remember godliness is a god toward us. Sin is a missing of the mark. Godliness is aiming at the mark of God in his glory. And because Jesus is godly. And there is an inseparable union between God and you, there will flow into you His godliness. You will be, as a church, a pillar and ground of the truth. You will uphold that truth. You will confess it purely, not perfectly. Purely, not proudly. You will study to develop your understanding of it, so that you might confess it in truth and in love. That's godliness. You will live a life then sober, not given to wine, patient, not covetous, as men ruling your house well. And yes, you, you hear the description, the qualifications of elders and deacons. But those descriptions apply to you and the office of believer. Join to Christ. You will be God. You must. You can. You will. Why? not because You're so great, but because great is the mystery of godliness who has joined Himself to You by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we exclaim with Paul and the church of all ages, Great is thy mystery of godliness, God the Son, revealed in the flesh, who stand in awe of that inseparable union of God and man, His conception in the womb of a virgin, and His sinlessness imputed unto us. We stand in awe of this godliness which he has for us and also works in us. Stir up within us a true faith that we might live for thee, for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.